What I hope to do in the next maybe 40 minutes or so and then take questions and answers is provide a kind of speculative overview, that's to say a theoretical overview for how in the Catholic tradition people consider the question of religious rationality or you might say irrationality. Look, the, the traditional Catholic conviction is that there are all kinds of ways human beings often fail to be re reasonable. And it's true also of in the order of religious behavior. So uh, in a certain way, uh, the people who are especially skeptical about religion because they think it leads to irrationality or it's based on irrational principles are not entirely in every respect enemies of the tradition of, of Catholic thinking. But you can go back and speak more radically and say, well, where, where in the tradition are the first criticisms of religious irrationality? Well, I mean, fundamentally in the Western tradition, it's in the Judaic revelation or the claims of the biblical prophets to expose the religious irrationality and superstition of the human race. So actually, if you find, you find the sharpest critiques of religious behavior typically in the Old Testament prophets. And that continues through into the New Testament and became thematic in the early patristic period, the first 500 years of Christian thinking. And you find it in, say, Augustine's City of God, where he goes on a rather uh, intensive critique of Greco-Roman religiosity and tries to expose what he thinks are the irrational irrationalisms of a lot of um, pre-Judaic are non-Judaic pre-Christian religious traditions. Um, so you could then you know, worry about that being too exclusivist or too narrow-minded or not uh, open-minded or maybe not self-critical enough. That's an interesting question. I'm just speaking about some historical background before I give the real presentation. The other side of this is you have a critique of religious rationality in the Western tradition that stems from Greek philosophy. And you find it in Plato and Aristotle, who are in some sense arguably religious men, but they're worried about the gods of the poets, as they say, and the myths of the city. And they do offer rather sustained, rational, critical, philosophical um, uh, reflections on the limitations or irrationality or superstition in human religion. And that tradition goes forward in different branches, but one branch becomes extremely skeptical about all religious behavior. And you find that specifically, for example, in Lucretius, uh, in the ancient um, you know, philosophers, contemporary of many of the Greek fathers of the church. And then you find it re-emergent in very powerful ways, a little bit in the Middle Ages with the so-called Latin avarists who criticize the whole idea of revelation, but especially in the Enlightenment. And you get the moderate Enlightenment, so you get people like Locke who think that some philosophical warrant exists for belief in the existence of God, but taking revelation seriously is potentially intellectually dangerous. And then you get the more extreme enlightenment for like Spinoza and arguably, I think, Kant, certainly Hume, who argue that all religious credence is effectively superstitious and intellectually irresponsible and morally dangerous, benighted. Benighted at best, dangerous at worst. So <laughs> that's a lot of stuff. You have the kind of biblical and Jewish and Christian tradition on the one side in the West, and then you have the philosophical tradition, and those things go in different, there's like a complexity to the, the philosophical side. But after just having given that very brief, perhaps intellectually irresponsible postcard view of things, let me say that in the 19th century, the Catholic Church weighed in on this in a more theoretical way at the First Vatican Council. The First Vatican Council was an ecumenical council of the Catholic Church that uh, has a dogmatic import, and they produced two documents, one of which is called De Filius in Latin, Son of God, 
which is on the relationships of faith and reason, and which touches on all these historical issues by trying to adjudicate what is rightly reasonable in the order of natural philosophy or philosophical thinking about God and what's reasonable in the order of revelation and how do they harmonize. And I'm going to give you a brief sort of summary of that view. So what I'm going to give you here, and which is on your handout, it's the side with the arrows and the schema, which I'm going to work from for the lecture, is the kind of Vatican I, a Thomistic, kind of in the spirit of St. Thomas Aquinas, a Thomistic rendering of Vatican I on the relationships of faith and reason. And after I've done that, I can talk a little bit about religious irrationality. <coughs> so it's not as complicated as it looks. If you start at the bottom, the first question you can ask that Vatican I does ask and, and address in a certain way is, Look, is human reason, philosophically speaking, you could say, even naturally open to religious belief? And that's really asked the fundamental radical question, can any religious credence or any claim to revelation even be treated seriously without in some way doing harm to the human intellect or the human mind? And the, I mean, that really is a fundamental claim about the range of human knowledge. Does human knowledge really, in a certain way, well, to take a very commonplace contemporary uh, criticism of religious belief that's derivative from David Hume, if you are a certain kind of empiricist, you want to be able to say that the aspiration to know things beyond the immediately empirical sensible realm is irresponsible. We live in the world of sense impressions and things we can measure and things we can know through the senses and construe, ideas we construe from ordinary common human experience. And to go beyond that realm or that range of knowledge is in some way willful and not rationally warranted. Okay, so Vatican I uh, responds to that, that there are many factors or features of human experience that lead us to open naturally to, to pose religious questions. And I have here, uh, when the arrow is opening up toward God, that's the idea. Okay, the natural human reason is opening up towards God. You have diver diverse inquiries that open reason to the possibility of knowledge of God and revelation. And you can go across the, the little line I've got above the arrows, metaphysics, ethics, science, and the cosmos. By metaphysics, I mean that the human intellect can attain a range of thinking about the world that asks causal questions that go beyond merely uh, the study of empirical and material f features of reality. In other words, something beyond just the knowledge we gain through the natural sciences or kinds of knowledge that track really closely onto the natural sciences. So, for example, in the, you can ask questions about the cause of being of things, why things exist or don't exist, either individual things coming into existence and going out of existence, or the whole sum of things that we experience insofar as they're all in some way contingent beings. Why is there a world of contingent beings? Is that even a permissible question? Well, the Catholic Church says, just from a philosophical point of view, that's an entirely permissible question and actually quite a reasonable one. And it opens the mind to the question of the existence of God. Is there a transcendent creator giving being or existence to everything that comes to be and go, comes into being and goes out of being? Is there something that's non-contingent, that's permanent or eternal beyond the things that are passing? Um, and there are other questions like this we get asked about the, you know, the nobility, uh, the di diversity of degrees of nobility and things like degrees of beauty. Does the beauty of the world around us, the beauty of the human person also, the beauty of the human spirit, 
Um, the degrees of perfection of the beauty of the human intellect or moral beauty, degrees of moral beauty in human beings, does that raise the question of whether there's a transcendent author of the beauty of the world, the beauty of the human person? I'm not answering the question. I'm just saying the question's legitimate. Uh, you know, and so you can also think about intelligibility in the world. Uh, this is like Aquinas' fifth argument for the existence of God. Does the fact that there's intelligible order in and through all of the world that we study scientifically and intellectually and academically, does that order which precedes us, obviously we didn't create it through our fabricated through our mind, does that, is that somehow a testimony to a transcendent divine wisdom or intellect that's the source of the intelligibility of reality? Okay, those are all legitimate questions, so say the Catholics in the Christian tradition. Okay, second, ethics. There's all kinds of questions about justice that are not answered just by looking through a microscope doing chemical, uh, studying chemical equations and, um, uh, or the mathematical sciences or uh, the study of particle physics. Um, you, you can't actually get to any important principles or conclusions of human justice of how society should be ordered just by looking at physical, sensible features of reality. So that shows you right there there's a dimension of human morality that we operate with all the time. Like you wonder about whether the exam grade you got is fair or whether someone said something to you affable or ineffable, whether someone was kind to you or unkind, just or unjust, uh, fair or unfair. All those kinds of worries aren't really purely empirical worries. And so then the question becomes, well, what are they? They're worried, worries about human acts and acts of human freedom. And human freedom is another thing you can't see through a microscope. This suggests there's another way, you know, a pathway through reflection on our human ethical experience where we strive to be happy, to try to find fulfillment, which opens up the question of religion. Does religion constitute a way, to, an, a way of access towards human happiness or human flourishing, or does it necessarily diminish human happiness? Are all the religious people always more unhappy than all the non-religious people? Okay, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, maybe not, it may not be subject to a sociological empirical study or psychological analysis. It may be a really kind of more deeper philosophical question. Are you, are you bound to be unhappy because you're unreligious, non-religious? Maybe not. And maybe this is a very hard question. And then science and the cosmos, science and scientific study of the cosmos themselves open us to questions that are potentially religious in character because um, there are limit questions you have to be careful with this because you don't want to kind of fall into what's so called a God of the gaps theory where, you know, we don't know what happened before the Big Bang, so we better posit God to have done it. Or we don't know how life came into existence five million years ago uh, at the beginning of single-celled organisms. So we better posit special creation by God. I'm not talking about that. But I do think the more you study the world scientifically and try to understand the strange shape that the, the cosmos has, that the modern scientific world picture gives us, in which things originated maybe 14 billion years ago through the Big, da bang, big bang, and the, cre the conditions in which life emerged arose, life could emerge arose, in our solar system at least, and then you had single-celled organisms five million years ago, and then you get an evolution of more complex organisms, and then eventually um, sensate learning, you know, interiority through which animals learn, and eventually the emergence of us self-conscious complex animals that are reasonable and free and asking questions about why the cosmos came into being. There's a, there's a, there's a sense in which the, study, the serious study of the cosmos elicits wonder, and instead of shutting down all the, the questions and answering them all, it actually elicits a lot of questions that science itself can't answer. Or at least I think it's adjacent to philosophical questions. It leads you very, it's very proximate to deep philosophical questions that can be asked 
by anyone who studies modern science seriously that the sciences themselves don't necessarily resolve. Okay. So there are more, there are stronger, all I've made so far is the claim of the traditional Christian philosophical tradition that there are good reasons to wonder about whether the, the world is open to a religious uh, horizon of explanation. You know, can we rightly wonder if the world is created by God? Now, there are stronger claims. The church makes at Vatican I the claim, which I'm not going to try to defend tonight, that you can arguably, you can demonstrate by rational philosophical argument that God exists. And um, I do believe that's true. I spent a lot of time wondering about that and studying different arguments. And I think lots of traditional arguments for the existence of God fail and are bad arguments. But I think there's a lot of good, uh, there's a lot of traditional arguments for the existence of God that, that, that work. And I've written about that in the book that uh, Jason mentioned, um, Wisdom in the Face of Modernity. And I've also given you a, um, a reference on the back sheet of your paper to a book, a recent book by Edward Fazer on the subject. And Robert Sokolowski has a very good book on this subject I've mentioned. So those give you some references of things you could explore. But even if it's true to say that it's philosophically warranted to believe that God exists, and that's, of course, something I'm just proposing, not demonstrating, that's different than believing in revelation. And that creates new questions and problems. Okay? So is it reasonable to believe in divine revelation? Now, the church argues that it's, there are good rational motives to believe in revelation, and I've given you a bunch of texts you can look at later from Augustine Aquinas on the, the warrant of belief on the back of the page. I mean, the argument by a metaphor would be this. Suppose through no fault of your own, maybe a war, as a baby, you were separated from your parents, and they couldn't find you and you couldn't find them. And you grew up a involuntary orphan trying to find your parents and they trying to find you, as it were. And you eventually were able to acquire knowledge of their existence, that they exist. My parents exist. And even something about their location. But you decided that you didn't really want to ever meet them or know them personally. Well, there could be all kinds of reasons on the human level that that could be psychologically defensible, I suppose. But normally, the natural impulse is to want to not only know that you have parents, but to know your parents personally. So it's just a poor analogy. But the likeness and unlikeness would be to the fact that in a certain way, it's one thing to know that God exists, but the rational motive for, for divine revelation is to come to know God personally, to be in a kind of personal relationship with God, as we say, by grace, to use the language of St. Paul in the New Testament, to come by grace to know God. So belief in God in that sense could be potentially rationally motivated, as to say, not crazy. It could be not crazy to want to know God personally. It could be an intellectually responsible thing to want to know not just that God exists, but to know God in a deep way. And it might lead to human flourishing. Analogous to like having loving parents leads to human flourishing. <coughs> but there are obviously problems, which are that there are many claims to revelation. Many of them are mutually incompatible. Some of them seem evidently unreasonable. And there's a widespread history of human religious traditions. So how do you even begin to adjudicate or make judgments about what you might reasonably investigate or believe. Now on that, we go to the top of the page, um, where the church at Vatican I talked about different degrees of rational intelligibility in the revelations itself. So in other words, this is not an idea. So let's be careful here. The church is saying you don't just blindly believe and tur turn your brain off when you enter the door of the church and blindly believe everything. 
That's not the idea here, actually. The idea is that the revelation is deeply intelligible, and you may have difficulties with it. Um, There could be reasonable objections to it that need to be worked through, but there are also um, profound patterns of rationality and intelligibility in the divine revelation. And so it can, it, the revelation can stand up to scrutiny. But what do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, actually, there are different ways that revelation can be reasonable or unreasonable. So I'm going to go through them, and I'm going to, I'm going to go in descending order. So um, one way is just by the internal intelligibility of the theological mysteries proclaimed. So the whole idea of revelation is that you're getting knowledge of God that's intellectual and personal. You know God personally, and you know something new about God you couldn't know otherwise. So it's not, it, the idea is not just that you have to be able to prove everything. That, that would defeat the purpose of Revelation. The whole point of Revelation is, in a way, beyond what you can prove or disprove uh, philosophically, you can learn things that God gives you, like giving you knowledge, just kind of like the way a human person can give knowledge to another person about themselves that is not immediately observable. God can give us information about himself. And the great Christian claim is that God is a mystery that we call the Holy Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that God has revealed himself in Christ. Um, well, so the first sort of claim about internal, about rationality is whether the, the very claim is internally intelligible or coherent. And there's lots of ways to pose that question. One is a question about whether the historical claims of the religion are demonstrably true or untrue or at least defensible. There's a book going, this is maybe not of absolute vital importance to you in Ireland, but there's a a book that's going around in uh, the United States right now that's very important among people in the Mormon community, written by a a former elder of Mormonism who left the community, and he starts by talking about why he had rational difficulties with the Book of Mormon. And it's interesting, the first thing he notes, I mean on the first page, is that the Book of Mormon claims to be 3,000 some years old, but it quotes on the, um, repeatedly the King James Version of the Bible uh, in its original English form and with, the, and with the words in italics that the translators put in there purposefully to show that it was, that these were interjections not in the Hebrew or Greek. Um, but the, the Book of Mormon claims that the angel Moroni dictated it with, you know, in that form, which is King James English, with the little italicized passages in it. That's, that's highly discrediting for the rationality or coherence of the claim of a historical revelation. Right? I mean, at least arguably it is. And it, it, it causes a, you know, a lot of perplexity to people who were raised in that tradition. Um, but there's other questions about, like, for example, internal coherence of the mysteries themselves. So say, for example, Catholic claim that the Trinity is uh, of monotheistic Trinitarianism, that, that God is both one and Trinity. I mean, in some ways, that's the ultimate mystery of Christianity. Uh, is that, does the, does the affirmation of the Trinitarian persons implicitly, in some really more or less clear way, uh, overturn appeal to the fact that God is one? I mean, can God be Trinity and be one? Of course, everyone in the Christian traditions argue that this is possible and that there are profound analogies for this mystery given uh, on the first page of the Gospel of St. John. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God, and the Logos was with God. Logos in Greek is concept or word or idea or reason that the, the eternal Son is, that's the Son is an eternal, immaterial emanation of the wisdom of God. So in God, there's an eternal emanation of wisdom. We call the Son an eternal emanation of 
the Holy Spirit, of love we call the Holy Spirit. And that's a mystery that cannot be proven or disproven by natural reason, according to the Christian tradition. Well, it's an interesting debate, but the point is, looking into that is part of the question of rational warrant for the revelation itself. Did the Jesus of history correspond in some way to the Jesus of the New Testament as he's presented in the New Testament? Obviously, Christians are going to have to argue that there is correspondence between what the New Testament presents about the historical Jesus and the actual historical Jesus to make clear that the, the belief in the revelation is warranted. Okay, so there's one idea about, like, is the revelation got a kind of internal um, intel, you know, coherence? But the second, the second criterion is kind of like, does the revelation enlighten our understanding of the world? So this is the, the argument like, okay, maybe, maybe you've defended the idea that there's a revelation of God, and maybe uh, it's actually reasonable to believe in God, but does it change or affect our understanding of the world? I mean, is it relevant? Um, and actually, this is a traditional place that the church also argues there's a kind of rationality to revelation. A famous case is the teaching on original sin. The teaching on original sin is the teaching that all human beings, because of a kind of a... We, we, were, we were created for an original covenant with God by grace, and that in some way, in the primal ancestry of the human race, we lost that relationship. And so now we're born in a state that's natural, human, and good, but deprived of the strengthening power of grace. And so our human nature is weak, and even though we're good, we are weak in ways that we can easily be prone to evil, or selfishness, or egoism, or distraction, or you know, all kinds of um, difficulties of doing the right thing. And that this weakness is present in us individually, it's present in us in our families, it's present in our civilizations. It doesn't make us evil. It's not, a way, it's not to cast aspersions on the human race, but it's to say that there's a certain frailty in all human beings as a result of original sin, moral frailty. And confusion, too, intellectual confusion. Okay, that's not, the mystery of original sin is not provable or disprovable by natural or philosophical reason because of the mystery of the rejection of grace or the lack of grace, which is a mystery of faith. But when you read a thorough description of the, the consequences of original sin and the weaknesses of the human condition by someone like Augustine or Aquinas, you do realize it explains a lot. I mean, it gives a kind of, casts a certain light on the human race. Um, and in a certain way, also, the claim of the atonement. This is an argument of C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, the claim that there's a kind of way in which hum, all human beings can have forgiveness of their sins because of the death of Christ. Uh, that Christ has atoned for human sins so all human beings can really receive the mercy of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. Well, there's at least some really clear sense in which it could be, if God exists and God has made an atonement for our sins, it could be very convenient and really fitting to want to, to receive the mercy of God and the forgiveness of our sins and some kind of deep moral strength that grace gives us. The last two things on the list are the reasons of credibility and the preambles of faith. Now, there, these are things that are in the Revelation that are given to kind of assuage or sustain human reason, like the philosopher in us, to give them a, a kind of a, um, enticement or a consolation that being religious is not unreasonable. So, like, reasons of credibility are uh, clear signs that something is happening that comes from God. 
the classic example is miracles. Um, Hume is very sensitive to this argument, and so he wrote the famous treatise on miracles to argue that it's never reasonable to believe in a miracle. And he claimed to him the miraculous is unreasonable. But that's not so obvious. If you go around and actually study kind of a traditional, ancient, but also more modern accounts of miracles that are very well attested, it's, it does seem like there's a lot of evidence of miracles, or at least they, they seem to be a feature of human history, which, if they're real, do seem to attest to the activity of God in history. Now, they're discreet. They're not overwhelming. They leave you free. And the Catholic tradition teaches that it's important they leave you free. They're not a substitute for faith, but they are a certain sign. Similarly, the holiness of the saints. You know, if you look at how people who are skeptical about religion have difficulty um, finding Mother Teresa disedifying, there tends to be a sort of sympathy for what she was doing. So Christopher Hitchens, you know, who's a new atheist and radical critic of religion, I mean, he feels like that's a danger to his viewpoint, so he needs to go after it. That's one of the reasons he wrote a, view, a book very critical of Mother Teresa as a delusionalist who wasn't really helping ameliorate people's lives but was just taking care of them when they're dying. Now, I don't think he won that argument even in the atheist community, but I think he was right to try to make it in a perverse kind of way in the sense that he wants to show that moral holiness is, as, as you see it in the, in the Christian tradition, is, a, is potentially a delusion. I think he's wrong about that argument, but I think he's right to sense that there's something there, like the signs of, you know, those signs of credibility. Um, a last case are the so-called preambles of faith in Latin, preambula fide. Those are things in the Revelation that, this, that the Revelation teaches you that can also be known by natural human reason, but which are difficult to come to. And so it's helpful to have the Revelation encourage you. And the most famous case is that the, the New Testament, for example, teaches us that it's philosophically warranted or rational to believe that God exists. All right, so if you're an agnostic, you're an agnostic, you go along to a Bible study because you're feeling unusually, cheerfully tolerant of your Christian friend, and you're sitting there, and they're reading Romans 1, and it starts talking about philosophical knowledge of God. And they say, yeah, God has taught, has revealed that we can come to know God philosophically, even though it's difficult. It's interesting that the revelation there is not acting against human reason, of course, but in, in t sort of encouraging you. And... Um, so when there's that overlap between the sort of high things of philosophy or the, the, the sort of highest reach of human philo philosophical thinking and the, the, the confirmation and revelation of teach teachings that are difficult but can otherwise be attained, um, that, that could be a sign of the rationality of the revelation. Okay? All right, so now I'm going to just finish by talking about different stances that can emerge on the relationship between faith and reason. So, and this is in the middle of the page. If you look at Hume, is there a, and I'm asking a question, is there a bridge between reason, natural philosophical reason, and revelation? Well, Hume says there's no bridge because any belief in divine revelation is in some way um, presumptuous, rationally unwarranted, potentially delusional, and I think you could say politically dangerous, okay? So atheism and materialism tend to be, in this tradition, the realistic truths, and any attempt to invoke religious belief or revelation is excluded on philosophical grounds. I've given the reasons that the Catholic tradition argues philosophically that that's unwarranted. 
You have a more moderate agnostic position in Kant that says we cannot really, we can't prove or disprove the existence of God, Immanuel Kant argues, but we can, we can act morally as if God exists because there, it's reasonable to think there could be a rewarder of, of moral actions in the world to come. But what we should not do is believe in revelation as a support system for special knowledge or special activity. So in other words, dependence on grace or revelation for things you believe or things you want to do morally would make you less morally autonomous and less responsible. And the church teaches that that's not a reasonable reasonable viewpoint. There are rational motivations to want to know God's revelation, to want to know who God is personally. And there are good rational motivations to want to receive the grace of God to be strengthened by God's grace in knowledge and in love. There's a Catholic uh, error condemned by Vatican I that's a 19th century theological trend called traditionalism, which argues that faith alone can give us orientation in life that's only religious revelation that does all the work, that philosophy doesn't have a role to play because it's too unstable. So that would be the idea that revelation has a kind of overwhelming capacity to enlighten us, uh, or it has the unique kind of trustworthy um, possibility to enlighten us, and that human reason is too fickle, too impoverished, uh, too fragile to depend upon. So everything should be revelation, and um, philosophical reason is basically, uh, it's philosophical reason that's pretentious, it's unhelpful. And the church, there's lots of positions on this, the Catholic Church. The church teaches that that's definitely an error. There is a position that's Augustinian that says that human reason without revelation will often fail. So it's not, surprised that, it's not surprising in the Augustinian tradition that a lot of people who don't have true revelation do get confused, even philosophically. Okay, that's a position. It's not the only Catholic position. The Thomas position is a little more optimistic about natural human reason. <coughs> And then there's another position of the 19th century Catholic, some Catholic thinkers termed Catholic rationalism. And that view is that you can prove the Catholic faith, the mysteries of the Catholic faith just from philosophical premises. So that would be the idea like you could prove that God has revealed himself in Christ just from philosophical reasoning. You can prove that Christ is God. You can prove the Holy Trinity. You can prove the mystery of transubstantiation in the Eucharist. And the church condemned that teaching. The whole point of the mysteries is that there are things we can't know just by our own... There, it's a gift of knowledge that we, can't, that we can only receive. It's not something we just have natural access to. I mean, revelation is a gift of intimacy with God that is not earned just by our natural capacities or by our natural ingenuity derived or invented. It's something that God reveals to us freely. Well, let me just finish then by saying, going back to the original question, in this view, which I've given a very brief, rapid uh, uh, exposition of, religion and religi- religious philosophy, you could say, and religious revelation can be harmonious and interact and complement each other and have a synergy. And so it's very possible to be a religious person who's not unreasonable and to be even a very reasonably religious person, to have faith in reason and to have a reason open to faith. And that's the Catholic position. But there are many ways to not get there or to go wrong or to fall alongside the way. And so there's many ways to be religiously unreasonable. And so just to say a few things about that at the end. um, 
You could be, I've given, I've given some examples. You can be religiously unreasonable by, in the name of religion, claiming that there is no vocation of the philosopher to try to figure things out with your natural reason. In other words, to say, revelation has given you everything. Don't think about it anymore. And don't think philosophically. Everything's been given to you by the church or by revelation. Okay? So that's the kind of traditionalism that would be, in a way, suppressing religious rationality. Church, the Catholic Church rejects that. I mean, in her official teaching, however any particular Catholic manages to, you know, behave. Um, another way would be if religious... So one would be suppression of philosophy. I'm looking at my three on the bar above the arrows. The kind of suppression of metaphysical autonomy to think about the world, what the world means philosophically. Another one would be if, in the name of religious um, revelation, one were to act against authentic, reasonable ethics. Right? So there's all kinds of ways that human beings historically have been callous, unjust, or uh, irresponsible, violent, um, uh, intemperate, whatever, in the name of religion. And it continues. It will always happen. It has to be regulated by civil society and the church and by religious traditions. Um, and um, th that's quite normal in a way that... See, religion is very important to human beings, actually, so it's not going to go away. <laughs> and since it's going to exist in us as a natural dimension of us, and religious traditions, not just Christianity, but also the other major world religious traditions, Islam, Hinduism, <laughs> Judaism, etc., since they're going to continue to exist, there's going to be always the danger within all these traditions of religious irrationality. And so the traditions themselves have to have ways to address religious irrationality in the domain of philosophy and ethics. But there's also science. And so when people in the name of religion decry or um, deny the legitimate conclusions of the modern sciences, that's also religious irrationality. Um, there's also religious irrationality when people won't acquire a, a deep historical understanding of their own religious tradition. Like they say, um, look, the New Testament just cannot be studied historically. Don't study the New Testament historically. It's not allowed. Um, because they, they say because it's divine, it can't have a human dimension and therefore it can't be subject to historical scrutiny. Well, that wouldn't be reasonable. The church has also said that, and that's why biblical scholarship should be both theological and historical at, at one time. Um, and it would be, you know, just... There, well, you could think of... I think I could give you other taxonomies. But the fact of the matter is, um, the answer to religious irrationality isn't the prohibition of religious thinking or the skepticism with regards to all religiosity. It's to acquire a really deep, harmonious vi vision of the relationship between philosophical reason and revelation. And uh, Vatican I, I think, puts us a long way down the right path towards understanding these things well and rightly. You know, so anyway, that's my, my basic claim is that the, the synergy can exist and should exist and I think in our own era, which is more secular, at least in Europe and the United States and North America, it's, very, it's imperative for some people to try to work out uh, an integrated view of the relationship between faith and reason. And it takes time. It's a speciality. So is physics. So is economics. And this is part of the speciality of uh, Christian philosophers and Christian theologians, is to show in a deep way the integral unity or harmony of faith and reason. So thank you very much.
So um, I'm going to take questions for a little while, and there are no bad questions. And um, if you have a perspective that isn't coming from the Christian tradition or is skeptical or critical, I don't, I don't mind that at all. And um, if you could raise your hand, I'll call on you, and then if you could uh, just speak loud enough that other people can hear you. I'll try to repeat it if you're soft-spoken. And there are no bad questions. Yes, sir. Uh, okay, so you mentioned how um, there is certain rationality and religiosity. So if you go back to your earlier example of this um, elder from the Mormon community who has kind of uh, backtracked from his faith, so to speak, because he, had, he, because he kind of realized or noticed all the Bible quotes in the Book of Mormon are from the Book of St. James Bible. Yeah. That could be an example of uh, can we truly say that he was irrational prior to his realization? Because if reason is operating without certain parts of knowledge, can we truly say that line of reasoning is then irrational? It's a it's an excellent question. Um, yeah, I I mean I think there's a difference between the subjective rationality of the religious agent and the objective rationality of the tradition in question. And people move and change on that issue all the time. So you have many people who are raised in the Catholic tradition who at some point go through a crisis of uh, questioning the rationality of their tradition. And some investigate and are confirmed in belief that the objective warrant is there for rational belief, and others, you know, write interesting books sometimes. I'm thinking of Anthony Kinney's book he wrote after he left the priesthood called A Path from Rome, where he argued for why he left the Catholic Church. Um, I've never found his arguments compelling, but you know, it's, he's a person who is intellectually honest, I think, trying to show what he was motivated by intellectually. So obviously, as you, as you I think, denote, the subjective person, the person in their intellectual subjectivity could be trying to have a coherent, reasonable view of the world but not have come to terms necessarily with the question of whether there are objectively reasonable criteria in their religious tradition such that they should hold to it or not. And that's the st and this is also, by the way, absolutely true of atheists and agnostics. I mean, I've worked a lot. I, I was a non-Catholic, agnostic, non-baptized person who became Catholic in college. But I've worked a lot with people uh, also who've done, had that pathway, including some who were coming from very critical atheist points of view, highly intellectual, often very philosophically um, informed, you know, you might say philosophically, philosophically convicted atheists who um, just from their own rational autonomy and sort of, you know, reflection have begun to wonder if there's truth to religion and have become Catholic. It's very interesting to watch those kinds of honest transfigurations or transformations, excuse me, transformations of the human mind. and. I think one of the reasons we read intellectual conversion stories like Augustine's Confessions or Newman's, John Henry Newman's Apologia, or um, the works of people who've left religion and assimilated to a purely secular point of view is to try to make our own judgments about the objective warrant of the religious traditions or the secular and atheistic traditions in question. Uh, and I think. Uh, you wouldn't ever judge the subjective culpability or maybe intention of the subjective practitioner. But the other side's also the case that 
everybody has an obligation to seek the truth. So they, everybody's in different places. But I wouldn't say to the, the, the Mormon elder, like, oh, you're off the hook because you're, you, know, you have a subjective purity of conscience. So you don't really need to ask the question of whether the religion is objectively true. You really do need to ask the question. And I think it's really important also for atheists to ask the question or agnostics to ask the question or Heideggerians or Kantians or whoever to wonder whether the, the sort of intuitions or convictions or arguments they have about the world are workable. You know, so I, but I agree with the fundamental substance of your, your comment. Sir, did you have a question up there? I have sort of a question, but it hasn't properly formed. Okay, uh, that's it's, fine. It's maybe, maybe uh, the one thing I, I, that seems to be missing is human freedom. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what part of that plays in Well, I, I, you're right, I didn't talk about it. Uh, I definitely believe in it and believe it's integral. Um, <coughs> So let me just say two things about that. One is that it's true I can see a truth and find it inconvenient and therefore not be, or what I take to be a truth, and not embrace it because, it's because of non-reasonable motivations. Right? So for example, I could be part of a religious tradition I, can, I begin to consider or suspect to be false, but I'm very scared of abandoning it uh, because of all the repercussions that would follow in my family life, or my professional life, or my personal life. And that's not particularly noble. It, it's totally human. It could be very understandable, but it isn't absolutely excusable. And it could be, in some cases, very, rather, rather un, un, unknowable. You know, like the person who just, you know, I'm, in my political career has helped, I'm not really Christian anymore, but my political career has helped more when I pretend I'm Christian, even though I don't really believe all that stuff. Right, so there's the, the will and free, like what we love and what we fear and the, the attachments of the heart and the desires of the heart always plays a role, and it can in some ways that are negative. But it also does in some ways that are positive. So sometimes I don't think the heart or the will uh, the, is moved, free will is moved without knowledge. But sometimes our intuitive, the more intuitive side of our mind is going further than our just rational deduction, and our heart is following our intuitions. Like, think about when somebody, I mean, I have a, I know a couple of people who got married, like, uh, decided to get married, like, after the third date. And as a priest, I told them, don't, don't do that. You know, don't, don't get engaged after the third date. You don't know each other well enough. But, it, but in some cases, that's really, that doesn't always end well. But sometimes that does end rather, you know, profoundly, beautifully. Because they just had this intuition on the third date that they were, could be friends for life. And they had, have had a beautiful marriage. That's a kind of intuition of love. But it's a kind of intuition of knowledge. And I think that our relationship with God or our relationship with Revelation can be like that too, where you don't have to hear the whole thing. You, hear, you start to hear it and you get this intuition that it's, of course, I think, illumined by grace, moved by grace from within. But the heart starts to tell you, this is true. This is, um, this is the pathway towards knowing the truth and knowing he who is the truth and being, finding kind of freedom in living with God. And so the heart has both negative and positive role to play. Um, but that's a different, and so I agree with you. It's just a different question than the question of whether per se a revelation is unreasonable. Yes, sir. Uh, in economics, a rationality is defined as having complete and positive preferences over things. Just like, uh, so it assumes that people are perfectly informed. So, but in reality, that's very rare. 
never happens. So maybe people are bound not to be fully rational about anything. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Can I address that? So you sound like a, you, you just gave great definition at the beginning of the Chicago School of Economics and you know the wonderful utilitarianism invented in my country or perfected in my country after it was, I think, created in Scotland. But anyway, um, uh, yeah. So I agree with your view that most people are under tremendous pressures of the sway of instincts, emotions, their heart, their will is going all over the place. There's social pressures. There's cultural conformity. There's rebellion against cultural conformity because it seems so uh, overwhelming. And then the rebellion isn't necessarily always totally reasonable. There's, um, there's the way conventionality for human animals who live in a kind of animal herd of reasonable animals, but animals none the same. It's part of belonging to a culture and, and a tribe to have a kind of set view that's conventional. Even when the, those conventions change, people tend to change in conventional ways to be with the larger group. So there's tremendous forces against rationality in the human race and in tradition. And so I think a couple of things that stand, the, the, the Catholic Church teaches, there's a couple of traditional helps in that respect. Well, that's one of the reasons, actually, it's one of the, this is one of the traditional arguments for the rationality of need, the need for revelation, because revelation comes in and gives you light from, if it's really from God, it gives you divine light from God to help orient you in a, in a world of confusion. Um, and, and, it, and it gives you the strength inwardly by the conversion of the grace of faith, hope, and charity, the conversion of the intellect and will to have that fortitude to adhere to the truth even against the grain and to seek the truth. But also, because it inscribes you in an old tradition of wisdom, if you look to the best monuments, not the crazy or weird things, but the best monuments of thinking in the Catholic tradition, you then gain purchase on deep wisdom, the, the well, the, the deep wellspring and reserve of, of rationality and, and profound thought. And it helps you be a better philosopher. It doesn't have to. I mean, you can be a, bad, a Catholic who's a bad philosopher. But it can help you be a better philosopher because it alerts you objectively outside yourself to the objects of the tradition that are really good. Like, you know, <clears throat> until you study Christianity, you might think Aristotle was just some old-fashioned person whose thought was displaced by Thomas Hobbes. But then you become a Christian and you think, well, Aristotle was respected by those guys, you know, the, the Christian tradition, so maybe I should read Aristotle. And then you re realize when you read Nicomachean Ethics that Aristotle has such a much more profound vision of human agent action and ethics than Hobbes, so I say polemically. But the point is, you might never even get into that question and get that Aristotelian vision of human action theory if you hadn't first like, paid attention to, Christian, to the Christian tradition. So I think it can help stable. I'm, I'm a very sympathetic to Alistair McIntyre's views on this subject in his book, Three Rival Versions of Moral Inquiry, which I think is a very important philosophical work about rational tradition and its relationship with revelation. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, well, I mean, 
Yeah, the, actually, the, one of the most important people to write on this in the modern era is Newman, John Henry Newman. In the, his book he wrote um, near the end of the 19th century called uh, A Grammar of Ascent. And what he looks at there is the way we make, you know, kind of how conversions work to, uh, you might call it a unified tradition of thinking or a worldview or a religious viewpoint. And he talks there, I've got it at the bottom of my page here, about something called the, uh, the uh, illative sense. And the illative sense, as I take it in Newman, is like a collage of intuitions. So I begin to investigate, let's say I'm, let's say I'm thinking about becoming Christian and I investigate um, good old Reformed Calvinism in its most beautiful articulations and Roman Catholicism, and I'm looking at them. Well, there's a number of really... I know a lot of people don't do this, but a lot of people do do this. Or sometimes, actually, they convert to one of these things, and then they begin to think about the other one. And then it hones their judgments. Sometimes they convert from one to the other. Okay, But, you know, like, so, for example, should Scripture be read in tradition? And if so, can the tradition enunciate dogmatic truths about Scripture that are held always and forever? So, you know, Calvinists hold that uh, in some sense. I mean, most traditional Reformed Calvinists hold that the dogmas, the dogmas of the later church are always revisable. So the teaching that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, one person subsisting as both fully God and fully man, the teaching of the Council of Chalcedon in 451, is maybe a good rule or guide to thumb to reading the New Testament, but it's not binding on the Christian conscience. That's where the Catholics argue, well, that's a, that's a conciliar formulation. That's a teaching of the church that's subordinate to the New Testament. It expresses the teaching of the New Testament, but it is also, as it were, perennially true. And is to be held, it can be enriched, it can be built on, okay. So you can start with a question like that, like tradition and dogma. And then you can ask questions about moral teachings. And you get into the vexations of whether the moral teachings of the Catholic Church are true or not on abortion or on a marriage or the nature of marriage, the nature of human sexuality, which are the topics we argue about today. But there's lots of other ones traditionally, like the care of the poor and, um, you know, the church's history on the development of her history on, of thinking on slavery where she did eventually condemn it, although slowly, but, but you know, coherently. Um, and you can, like, look at the development of, of those teachings in the tradition and think about whether you can find them plausible or not. You know, so I think that's the kind of thing that happens. I mean, it's obvious that the two most vital religious traditions in our era are Islam and, and Christianity. And in a certain sense, despite its travails in the European world, Catholicism continues to be the most viable and lively and widespread version of Christianity. And, you know, it is interesting, and it's not something I'm at all expert on, but it is interesting to look at the history of polemic and exchange between Muslims and Catholics, because the Islamic tradition has a very strong insistence on the rationality of the Quran and claims against the rationality of Christianity. And Christianity has a strong set of claims about the rationality of Christian mysteries or the, and the coherence of that, and problems with the Quran as an inspired text and the rationality of belief in Muhammad as a prophet, and problems with um, the way Muslims argue against the Christian mysteries, like of the Trinity. And I think there's a way to engage all that that should be as non-threatening to us and as uh, intellectually important as the way we can we have slowly learn to engage between atheists and, and, and Christians in the West. So, you know, I don't, at this point, you know, it's not a matter of bloodshed to talk to, between Humean atheists and Catholics, although they don't talk to each other enough. 
And I think there are important conversations. We just saw one in the last couple of days between Muslims and Catholics um, that happened in Dubai. And I, and I think that that needs to develop. But I think there's, uh, if you talk to anyone who's a serious Muslim or a serious Catholic who knows the other religion well, including people, for example, who I, I happen to know in my quadrant, some people who converted from Islam to Catholicism, and they are absolutely engaged with this question of rationality. And they're very vulnerable to it. And their family members who argue against them, and who defend Islam, are often very uh, concerned about, not always, but often concerned about the rationality of them becoming Christian. So I think it does matter tremendously. You know? But I think it can be, those kinds of arguments can be conducted in ourselves and in others in ways that are, the, the, the arguments are high stake, but they're tra they can be tranquil. They can be humane. Um, yes, sir. The, yeah, the Christian teaching is that God is love. Yeah. And uh, we're also rational beings. And he made us in a, in a coherent world, you know, where if you delve down into the physical laws, you find this great harmony in creation. In yeah. The laws of physics. And then you know, we're, we're able to postulate the beginning of the world and the beginning of time and so on. But if God is love, and if that's the core of the Christian teaching, is that how we should approach his existence through that concept, more so than using a rational endeavor? It's another great question. Listen, in, Christian, in, in classic Catholic thought, the question you ask is a classic controversy. And there are, there's the right of different points of view. So Aquinas thinks that you can argue philosophically that God is love in the sense that God, the creator, is eternally good and wise and loves himself in a non-egoistic, an entirely non-egoistic way because God is infinitely good. So he rightly loves himself and he creates all things out of the love he has for himself and loves the things he's created. That's a philosophical claim. Aquinas makes that argument at the end of the first book of the Summa Contra Gentiles. He thinks that the knowledge of God's shared life with us as like communion with God's eternal charity given to us by the Holy Spirit is a higher contact with that mystery of love that is only made possible by grace. And that can be neither proven nor disproven philosophically. I mean, we can't prove God is Holy Trinity. We can't prove the Holy Spirit exists by philosophical argument. And to live in the Holy Spirit, to receive the grace of the Holy Spirit and live in the love of God poured into our hearts as charity is to be elevated beyond our nature into this life of grace with God. And that's a mystical life. Aquinas thinks the mystical life's real. He was a mystic. He was a philosopher and a mystic. And he writes about the, the transformation of the human person that happens when you begin to live, you might say, in a mystical relationship with the divine love that happens by grace through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So he's got the philosophical argument for God as love, and he's got this kind of mystical idea. And he thinks they're distinct but complementary, again. But if you go in the Franciscan tradition and you look at someone like Bonaventure, who lived at the same time and is a, a marvelous thinker, but very different, much more Neoplatonic, much more of a mystical philosopher, Bonaventure wants to argue that the goodness in all things, the harmonious goodness in all things, bespeaks to us not only of, um, it, it elicits in the heart a tendency to recognize God as love, and it bespeaks of us not only of the God, the creator, is love, but in some sense, 
the physical world and its perfections are indicative a little bit of the Holy Trinity and the communion of God. Aquinas didn't think you could get to the Trinity just from philosophy. Bonaventure thinks there's sort of arguments of fittingness from the goodness and love in this world to, and then there's a stronger version of this by a person named Richard of St. Victor. And Richard of St. Victor thought that the communion of persons uh, that we experience between human persons suggests to us that there's a perfection like that in God. The, the, the one God is a communion of persons because uh, to be perfect personally is to be in a communion of love. So that's another tradition. The church permits all these different traditions. I mean, they're all different ways of going, but Aquinas doesn't think you can prove, he doesn't agree with Richard of St. Victor that you can sort of dim, argue to the Trinity all the way from love. So he holds that first position. But, you know, these are healthy arguments. You know, um, they're not the thing you find in the modern university, but you can, if you go to like theological colloquia, sometimes find theologians still debating them. And they're very beautiful debates when they're conducted kind of uh, spiritually and with some depth. Thank you for your patience and for your generous questions. It was good talking to you.